Hello and welcome to Giant Mess, a sloppy sports and entertainment talk show that covers New York Giants football, Mets baseball, movie reviews, TV show recaps, and reactions, along with some funny stories and life lessons along the way. Hosted by Giant Mess, that's me, the real cinch Neil Lynch. I'm a former college quarterback and pitcher and current fat ass. You can leave a voicemail at 862-BIT-1986. That's 862-248-1986. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the Metros. With all with great success comes great responsibility. No, that's not how it goes. But the, <laughs> all, the, all the, the high that we were feeling off the five-game winning streak, you know, taking two or three from the Rays and then sweeping the Guardians, it all came... We came back down to earth big time against uh, the Cubs and the Rockies, so we'll briefly recap and react to those two series. And the we're kicking off our series, three-game series against the, the Filthies. Uh, game one of that series being played right now, bottom eighth, two nothing Mets, no big deal. And then we'll take a we'll preview the Blue Jays series, which uh, really, 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 really ecstatic that we're facing them in Queens as opposed to going up to Toronto. We'll also talk about Los Gigantes. The OTAs have started, and my God, the reactions are pouring in. <laughs> People are thirsting for football. And every single play, every single day is uh, getting uh, wildly blown out of proportion. But we'll react to some of the reports coming uh, from the Big Jays there. You know, does Darren Waller make us a top 10 offensive unit? Probably. And then there are some position battles going on. Um, I don't see them. I don't really see them as battles. I think it's pretty definitive outright what's going to happen, but we'll get into that. React to some of the stories about Saquon Barkley's contract taking another step back. God damn, man. God damn. The rumors circulating, at least online, amongst the fans about DeAndre Hopkins coming to the Giants uh, after being released by the Cardinals. And then comparisons. We love comparing. And my therapist says you should stop comparing yourself to others. But fans love to compare, and so a lot of people are comparing Daniel Jones, our, uh, our prince, to Josh Allen, who was a, a darling heading into last year. And then uh, some have some have said he's peaked. <laughs> so again, totally not an overreaction whatsoever. And with that healthy intro, let's get started. So the New York Mets breathed life back into the Mets fan base with a nice, healthy winning streak. You know, looking good against the Rays, looking good against the Guardians. Uh, Verlander telling ESPN to take a hike. You know, everything was right in the world. Then we went to Chicago, and we faced a team that some people would say is inferior to us, at least on paper, but statistically, as we mentioned last week, they don't, they don't seem to be playing like they are a team that's, that was five, six games, four games below 500. I didn't get that impression by looking at their, their rankings in the National League, their offense, their pitching. It just seemed like there weren't any glaring weaknesses. And I think we saw that on full display in the three-game set in Chicago. Um, you know, we were recording that Tuesday, and so I kind of was giving some uh, live break-ins here and there, some play-by-play. Play -play. But Tyler McGill, 
<sighs> it's been a rough couple starts for our boy, Ty Lord. He was statistically, I guess, our best pitcher, at least from a win standpoint, five wins. He's still the leader in that category, which is kind of crazy, but couldn't locate the ball, couldn't find the strike zone, couldn't get ahead in the count. And we've seen how that can really uh, derail, you know, any hopes of winning for any team, really. I don't know that many pitchers can overcome that or pitch like that and get the get the dub. So wasn't looking good earlier on, early on for him. And he didn't finish well. Three and two thirds, six runs, four earned. You know, uh, Vientos, Vogelback, Mar- Marte, they left uh, combined, left six six guys on base. Not a ton, but, you know, it just feels like uh, there were opportunities here and there as opposed to the next day, which we'll get into. But um, just really disappointing, you know, coming into coming into Chicago and... I guess understandable travel day, new place, coming off the high of you know winning a doubleheader on the Sunday night baseball. I get it, but um, you can't put the team in that kind of position where it's just clawing back, fighting back the entire time, and uh, that this that wouldn't be his only rough start of this this week long patch, this week long time frame. The next day, four two loss. Okay, a little more competitive. Kodai Senga gives us five innings, six hits, three earned, six Ks, five walks. Again, that's a very yucky stat line. The walks are the most concerning, right? Um, and I think that's the scouting report that we got for the booth tonight because Kodai started tonight and looked magnificent. Seven innings pitched, nine Ks, one run. Couldn't ask for anything better. But we've talked about, like they showed it today, the Mets record when they get six innings of quality starts, something like 13 or no, we're undefeated. We don't lose when we get a quality start. So let's just get some quality starts, right? And uh, the booth was saying that the reason that Senga doesn't give us, even though he is, I guess, the leader in the clubhouse when it comes to quality starts. I mean, he's one of the rare guys in the rotation that can go into six innings. But even... Uh, I think the, the expectation was he's a lock for six innings and then let's get into the seventh. You know, this the outing tonight is kind of more in line with, I think, what the hope was, the expectation was for him, that he would come in and, and be that that third, I wouldn't say ace, because like, I guess Scherzer and Max, Scherzer and uh, Verlander are the aces, quote unquote, although I would say that the, uh, we might need to rethink <laughs> calling them aces after some of the, the recent performances. It's like they do, you know, they'll have a start where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I forgot. Cy Young winner, uh, absolute dog, you know, going to give us that every time out, and we're just not getting that. So I don't know. I don't know what we can call them aces. Maybe that'll light a fire under their ass. Someone show them this clip. Anyway, Sanga's not getting us a lot of quality starts because he's not, again, same thing that afflicted McGill. Not able to locate, not able to find the strike zone. Getting behind in the pitch count. And a lot of the hitters have now started to tee off on his fastball. If he can't locate a lot of his pitches, he gets behind the count. And he has to go fastball. That's when he's getting rocked and ripped and shredded. But when he gets ahead, that's when the ghost fork comes out. And that's when it's lights out for opposing hitters. So that's the key to success. Not to oversimplify things, but yeah, that's it. Get ahead in the count. 
first pitch strike, second pitch strike. And if teams start to catch on to that and start swinging, uh, you could look at some nice quality starts because they're, you know, they're putting the ball in play. Oh, one, Oh, 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 two. You know, you're looking at lower pitch counts first and foremost, which is always great. And we have one of the better defenses in the league. We've committed the fewest errors. You know, I mean, Nimmo robbed Castellanos tonight. And, uh, you know, we just have a, a really solid, good defense. So let's put the ball in play. You know, you know how to strike everyone out. And uh, you saw that tonight against the Phillies. But that did not happen in Chicago against the Cubs. And that, uh, I think one of the reasons, or at least one of the excuses that I've seen floating around is that the weather was not great. You know, it's the, the coldest weather that Senga has ever pitched in. Um, that's completely understandable. You know, that, that affects how you pitch. You know, I mean, living in the Northeast my entire life, you know, spring training or preseason, whatever you want to call it, starts in March. And uh, it doesn't get, it's not warm in March here. It doesn't get, they're, they're like blizzards around St. Patrick's Day. So you can imagine what it's like pitching in that weather and and like even hitting in that weather is even worse because you get you catch one you know on a metal bat near the handle and it's just like you're you're vibro in the worst possible way. Your hands are just like you get the the it's like a stinger that goes down your your arms to your elbows. The pitching it's like forget about it. There's just you're just trying to survive at that point. You know, meanwhile you go to in college, we went down to spring training in Florida, and it was like, I, that's the best I've ever thrown in my life. You know, I hit 87 miles per hour. Can you believe it? <laughs> we don't need to look into, like, wind patterns or anything like that. It was 87, straight up. So, <clears throat> that game, we also were going up against a, an ex-Met, a former Met, Marcus Stroman. I don't know that I've heard a ton about Stroh heading into this series. I honestly forgot he was on the Cubs. And then now it's like I, he's not nonstop in my feed. Like not just that that particular start against the Mets, but he then shut down the Rays. And it's like, oh, okay, interesting, interesting things. But he went eight innings, four hits, three earned, three Ks, two walks. It's like a very Marcus Stroman line. And <clears throat> part of me misses that, right? Not a like mind-blowing line, but putting the ball in play, getting outs. That's the name of the game. And he's also a golden glover, which he, he makes very humble about. He doesn't really flash that the glove too much after he makes a great play. But, of course, Buck wasn't too happy about his antics and shenanigans and whatnot. And as were a lot of the Mets, Mets uh, dugout, Mets clubhouse. Um, and Stroman, I try to pay him no mind because it's like he seems like a troll. Seems like he likes getting under other people's skin. You know, he said he's doing him, and I'm all for that. You know, I think that I love, I hate the, using the word swagger, but that level of confidence and cockiness, whatever you want to call it, um, is something that the game needs, and I like it because I like personality. And uh, David Robertson just closed down the night. So two nothing Metros. So what I'm most excited about with this Phillies series is like we talk about get right series. We thought the Rockies was going to be a get right series. And I honestly think if we can really take it to the Phillies, I think that it's going to that's going to be huge momentum wise taking us into the Toronto series. So, yeah, getting back to Stroman. I mean, 
you know, you can't, you just can't let it affect you. Can't let it impact you. It's like, you don't want him talking shit on the mound, pointing to you and gesturing and pointing to his glove and all that stuff. Get your mind right. Hit the ball. Put it where they ain't. There's, there's ways to shut him up. And that's to, to get the best of them on the field. So uh, you don't want that to happen. Well, then you know what to do. But part of me, uh, I would have I liked to have Stroh for much longer than we did. It sucks that he has this perspective and view that the Mets are just like this racist organization. And, uh, uh, you know, we've come a long way from when we passed on Reggie Jackson because <laughs> he was black, you know? Um, that was wild hearing about that. And when I was doing research on Reggie Jackson, like, oh, he could have been a Met, but uh, he was too, a little bit too racist. I just, I, you know, there's racial bias. You can't ignore that that's a thing, but I just can't, I just don't see that with the current day Mets, that there's like this active racism against him. And it's like, we, when you perform and play and show out, we fully embrace you. Um, but he had, he just felt otherwise. And I'd be curious. I haven't, I don't have, I don't, I'm kind of curious, but I'm not curious enough to dig on, dig in on it. What his experience in Chicago has been like what the Cubs fan base thinks of him. Um, I'm sure recency bias would show that they friggin' love him. He's pitching like a maniac right now. So, but, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold or as my mom would like to say, revenge digs two graves. Okay. So, uh, but I would be willing to tank the Mets season just to get revenge on Marcus Stroman. <laughs> no, but, uh, Hopefully we do see him again and, it, and things turn out differently. The next day, though, our boy, Carlos Carrasco, Cookie, gave us probably one of the best outings he's had in a Mets uniform, I want to say. Six and two-thirds, five hits, one run, four Ks, two walks. Again, nothing really crazy to write home about in terms of, of strikeouts. Not like a overly dominant performance, but he was in control, you know? Um, I saw this on Twitter. Carlos Carrasco's velocity on his fastballs is trending up since he returned from the IL. His average four-seam fastball velocity in his first start of the 2023 season was 91.1. And then in this game, it was 92.3. And you might be saying to yourself, oh, wow, a whole mile per hour. Dude, have you gone a mile in an hour? Things get moving. So, very good. If he can, if he can be... Now, he's not going to give us that every time out. I get that. That Cubs lineup is not too shabby. And if we can get something along those lines, five and two thirds, six innings, you know, give us a little, get us deep into the fifth, into the sixth, only giving up a run or two or hell, I'll even go for three runs. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. That'll be huge. So if Senga can get his, can, can get ahead in the count, get ahead of hitters, not allow them to tee off on the fastball, really be able to lean on the ghost fork. If Cookie can come out, and do what he did that day. And if Scherzer and Verlander can just like get some kind of consistency, our rotation now is not looking so dreary. <laughs> we actually have four quality starters. Uh, but that was a, that was a big one. Ten one win. Offense came out firing. Beatty with two ribbies. Marty Marte with two ribbies. Alonzo two ribbies. Nimmo two ribbies. McNeil was three for four with three runs scored. 13 hits in total, but we left 17 on base. 
So 10 runs, great, but 17 left on base. There were more ducks on that mother effing pond, y'all. And all those runs came against the starter Hendricks and then a reliever Rucker. So you figure, okay, what a time to be alive. 10 runs against the Cubs in Chicago. We're going to go into Colorado. Our offense is rolling, and we're just going to put up numbies. We're going to put up some crooked numbers, some double digits possibly. And Friday night wasn't exactly the fireworks explosion that we had in mind, but we did get the dub, 5-2. Scherzer gives us the seven innings, one run, six hits, eight Ks. That's, that's like the Scherzer that we're, you know, I don't think, you know, I think we've, our expectations for Scherzer have been lowered significantly. I think that's one of his better starts of this season. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we're asking for that every time out. It's just like at this point, you know, we're in such dire straits that it's like, we'll take six innings and two or three runs and eight hits and five kits. You know, it's like we're just looking to keep it manageable because this offense has firepower in spurts. Very, very odd how this offense is taking shape. Um, that was Max's, I mean, believe it or not, did you know, Max's first career win at Coors Field, going 0 for 3 over his six previous starts with a 6.39 ERA. And he says this is the healthiest he's been since opening day, which is great and all, but I'd I'd take that with a grain of salt. (laughs) You know, the way he was talking about this injury that he had that that, uh, put him on the IL, and even when he came back off the IL, he was citing the injury, and it's like it was similar to the injury he had in 2019 with the Nationals, and I'm just like, this is just going to linger. This is going to be an issue off and on all season. So uh, we'll take what we can get with Scherzer. Uh, Lindor, two for four, four ribbies. He's on pace to set a Mets record for doubles in a season. Nimmo was two for two with three walks and three runs scored. And on the negative side of things, Marte, 0 for four, three left on base. Alonzo, 0 for four, five left on base. McNeil, 0 for five, three left on base. So uh, thank Jeebus that Mad Max came out and uh, put on a a nice show and also for the bullpen for not you know uh, collapsing when he came out in the eighth and ninth you know Jeff McNeil heading into that game so he had a bad night 0 for 5 3 left in base but heading into that night over his last 10 games he was hitting 412 eight runs three ribbies one stolen base his average went up almost 30 points to OPS went up about 20 some odd points almost 30 points 459 on base percentage uh, is it safe to say he's underrated, underappreciated? You know, I know he's the batting champ. I think he's well-recognized across the league, I think. But he kind of flies under the radar. Um, I just, uh, I like seeing him successful and uh, not slamming his helmet to the ground <laughs> and cursing the gods. So uh, great to have him uh, firing on all cylinders. And then uh, that this is where things don't they don't turn out so great. They take a downward trend. Ten seven loss. And if uh, heading into the series, if you said to me, um, knowing what Scherzer's previous record is, it's like, well, that feels like a loss. Dude can't win at Coors Field, so that's a loss. Well, at least we got Verlander because that seems like that's a dub. And then we have Tyler McGill, and that's like a mixed bag, but it, odds are maybe he's probably not going to bounce back. So there's a very real possibility we could lose two of three, even though everyone expects us to sweep. And we, lo- we lose two of three, but it's, uh, it's Verlander that I think is the one that really 
not soul crushing, but it just like, oh, really? You you follow up such a tremendous outing against Cleveland, duking it out in a duel with Shane Bieber, and then come out against the Rockies and you, you pitch five innings, give up nine hits, six runs, and only strike out two, which was his lowest total since 2018. Meanwhile, six of our seven runs came against the bullpen. Their starter, I think through five, maybe give up one, yeah, one run. And then uh, the Rockies rallied for four runs in the seventh and eighth innings against Jeff Brigham and Drew Smith. Jeff Brigham is interesting. I think he got off to a pretty hot start with us. Has been fairly reliable as far as I can remember. Drew Smith is just feels like a wild card. I, I have no idea what we're going to get with Drew Smith. He can come in and strike out the side. He can come in and, and um, load the bases and give up a grand slam. Like It just feels like I don't have a good beat. I don't think anyone has a good beat. Andrew Smith. So that's disappointing. Uh, and then you think, all right, let's salvage the series. Let's at least get a series win against the lowly Rockies who are in last place in the NOS and have like maybe a dozen stolen bases, <laughs> like which is unconscionable. And we come out and we fight hard. The offense fights hard, but we, we have an 11-10 loss. We're up 6-2 in the fourth, and that's when McGill fell apart. Four innings pitched, 10 hits, six runs, four earned, three Ks, two walks. Magosic wasn't much better. He gave up five earned run on four hits in one inning, which is uh, fairly uncharacteristic of him. I feel like he's been dependable out of the pen. I think he's one of my one of my favorite relievers. And might be due to the, the stash, but uh, it's, it's, it's unusual for him. So not great. But uh, Al, we, you know, I was bemoaning. Buck's decision to start Gary Sanchez in Chicago. And I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? Why is he getting so many appearances, innings? What what happened to Alvarez? And uh, it's Alvarez just decided, well, I'm going to make the decision extremely easy on you, Buck. Here we go. And he's been tearing the frigging cover off the ball. And that's why they moved him up to the number two slot in the lineup. And he responded with three ribbies, uh, a nice, big, fat three-run home run. Um, Tommy Pham was three for four with four RBIs and two runs scored. Kind of feels like Canna and him are platooning now. And uh, it seems like Buck seems to be favoring Pham over Canna. I could be looking way into that. But, um, you know, I don't think that a lot of people expected Tommy Pham to be producing like he can or has been. Uh, obviously, he can go into some pretty gnarly slumps, but it's... Uh, Kind of crazy that he's like, you know, can be <laughs> can be the, the spark plug. 22 runs we scored in that three-game set against Colorado, and it's the most in a series that we've had all season outside of the A's series, maybe? I think that sounds right. The A's seem like they would give up a ton of runs to us. So offense, not necessarily the issue. It's the friggin' pitching. So if... uh. Verlander, I mean, it's, I mean, literally, it's been so volatile with Verlander. A really horrible start against the Rays, great start against the Guardians, really horrible start against the Rockies. You know, you kind of just want to, like, just level this out a little bit. Meet us halfway, and uh, I think we can win more games than lose if you just pitch average. <laughs> like, it's just, uh, is that possible? So we're off on Monday. We had the, the first game of the three-game set at home against the Phillies. 2-0 win, Kodai Senga, as I mentioned, really um, outstanding effort. And you can see 
I mean, that number that I said at the beginning of the, uh, of the episode, the beginning, beginning of the sequence, like we're just, if we get, we just need a quality start. You know, I think the bullpen for the most part on most nights is fairly, is solid, you know, and if you get, you get them, you get them the lead. I just still think we haven't lost a game when we're leading after the eighth. It's been like 115, 52 innings straight or something like game straight. So, you know, just let's get the lead, give the bullpen the lead, and odds are we'll come away with the victory. So, big first win, game one. Um, who do we got for game two and game three? On the bump. Aaron Nola versus Carlos Carrasco tomorrow night. Mmm. Nola's four and three with a 4.59 ERA, 60 strikeouts. Uh, I feel like we usually do decent against him and then if this is the new cookie a fresh cookie instead of a a cookie that gets chewed spit out we're looking at a we're looking at a close another close game i think every game is going to be close then we get to face on thursday afternoon it's taiwan walker against max scherzer taiwan winning record four and two but he has an era over five and a half 43 strikeouts you gotta you gotta take that one so feels like we're probably gonna take the L tomorrow with uh, with Carrasco. Although who knows, he might come out and give us another stellar performance, and we might say to ourselves, "All right, he is reborn. He has risen. He's rejuvenated." Um, you know, Ranger Suarez, tonight's pitcher, came in with like an ERA over nine. He lowered it to seven because he only gave up uh, one or two runs. Um, but this Phillies rotation pitching staff, they give up runs. So I think we can get to him. And it's just a matter of like, can our pitchers begin to put it together and figure it out? It's like Kodai feels like he's, you know, hitting. Maybe this is what he needs to get back in the groove. I, I just wish we had a little more consistent consistency. It just feels like so up and down from start to start. Like, is this the start where Max just gets railed? You know, I don't know. But if I had to guess, I'd say tough fought. Game against Aaron Nola probably might take the L there, but if we can pull out the the series against Taiwan, that'll be nice, nice sweet justice. And we got the Blue Jays. We get to face another X Met, Chris Bassett, in that uh, first game on Lou Gehrig Day versus uh, the Blue Jays. He's five and four with three eight three eight ERA, fifty seven strikeouts. So it looks like after maybe a rough start. To the season he's settled down and is looking pretty solid. I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of sports talk going around about, well, do you regret letting him walk? Do you think we should have brought him back? It's like, well, if you're going Senga versus Bassett straight up, Senga has the better numbers. If you're looking at Bassett versus Carrasco, yes, we'd love to have Bassett over Carrasco. I think a lot of people would take that. But again, you know, we it's not an unlimited budget per se. It's like <laughs> we can. He's not, uh, you know, Uncle Stevie's not afraid to pay. It's just like gotta be a little smart about it. And then, uh, so Verlander's going against Bassett, and you know, I this if we're going up, down, up, down, this is an up game, right? It seems like he'll come out and give us the kind of a uh, outing that we were hoping, you know, that we would want to get. And then we got Barrios, Jose Barrios versus McGill in that second game of the three-game set. That's Saturday at 4:10. 
Barrios is five and four with a three point eight six ERA, sixty two strikeouts. McGill, uh, though he has five, he is five and three. His ERA is ballooned to four point six seven, uh, and that's going to be a that could be a big game for McGill. You know, I don't know that you can go three straight outings and get shellacked and expect to stay in the rotation. I mean, I think they. They tried to show as much, demonstrate as much patience as they could with David Peterson, but it's like this is now the third or fourth or even fifth straight start where he is just getting annihilated out there, and you can't have it. Of course, he goes down to AAA, and he's like, you know, going to win the, I guess, the minor league Cy Young, whatever the equivalent of that is. <laughs> he's pitching incredible down there, but can you? it doesn't necessarily translate up here. So, whew. So that's uh, the Blue Jays. I had, I had some the preview of the Blue Jays down here somewhere. Yes, 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 yes. Here it is. Blue Jays are twenty-eight and twenty-six. They're in last place in the AL East. They're about a half game back from the next place finisher in the Red Sox, the fourth place Red Sox, and then they're ten back of the first place Rays, who are back to being world beaters. They're uh, offensively, they're sixth in runs per game, fourth in doubles. They're Right around the uh, league average in home runs and RBIs. They're fifth in stolen bases. They've struck out the fourth fewest times. Third highest batting average. Third highest on-base percentage. Fourth highest OPS. Third highest OPS plus. Third most total bases. And the, But they have the most runners left on base. So a similar issue to what the Mets offense uh, has been struggling with for the uh, majority of this season. It's just like let, leaving guys on base. Stranding a lot of runners. I think Toronto does that as well. As far as the pitching uh, staff goes, they're hovering around average in most categories. They have a sub-4 ERA, the fifth most Ks, the tie for the second most box. Something to think about if we get some guys on base. Can we get? Can we force them into some box? Third highest home runs per nine, but also the third, third highest strikeouts per nine. So, uh, And the Mets have been hitting a lot more home runs of late. So that could be a good time to feast there. As far as the starting pitching goes, they have the second worst wins above average in the AL. The relief pitching is the fifth worst wins above average. Um, so it sounds like, you know, if we can hopefully avoid striking out, we might have a fighting chance. The Blue Jays have the fifth best wins above average for first base. That's due to Vlad Guerrero Jr. Obviously, they're the best wins above average for third base and Matt Chapman. Second best, a wah for shortstop with Bo Bichette. Fourth best, wah for left field, Dalton Varsho. Best wah for center field and Kevin Kiermeyer. Yeah. You know, it's important to look back at some of the moves that we made and didn't make. And say to yourself, are we better off or are we not? George Springer, who everyone wanted to be the Mets center fielder for the rest of time, is now in right field. So, And, and people were like, we need to move on from Van Nimmo. He's just not our center fielder. And now I'd be shocked and appalled if Brandon Nimmo doesn't win the gold glove this year. In addition to hitting, you know, 306, over 300. And um, so pretty, pretty happy with that, right? I think we will take Nimmo over Springer, 10 out of 10. The outfield overall is the third highest wins above average. But uh, much like the Mets, they haven't really got a ton of other DH or pinch hitting. Although Escobar seems to be the go-to bat coming off the bench and uh, has somewhat thrived in that role, in the part-time role. So 
that's the the sneak peek on the Blue Jays. We are now um, with this one. We're twenty eight and twenty seven. One game above five hundred. Uh, I don't know how the Marlins did tonight, but we're probably half game game back from them. Still, we're now three and a half games ahead of the Phil- Phillies. And you know, for all this talk about how great the Braves are, they're four and six in the last ten, and they had a ch- they've had chances to kind of run away with this division sort of and they haven't really done it so you know i know it's way too early to be talking about the wild card but we are we were one game back of the giants san francisco giants for the for that uh third wild card spot before tonight's game i don't know how san francisco uh i don't even think they started playing tonight but probably half a game back as of right now again it's it's just funny to talk about the wild card already um and like the cubs are 23 and 30 rockies are 24 and 31 the padres are 24 and 29 tied with the reds pittsburgh who i think was 19 and something at one point is 20 26 and 27 now so it's a long season buckle up uh some interesting thoughts from anthony decomo so now that the the season is one third done you know memorial day is like kind of the uh of tentpole flagship highway marker or it's time for some reflection so the first third of the season is for self-evaluation he says the second third is for action right because the trade trade deadlines looming that august 1st date right so you have pretty much june and july to really take action it's like all right here are weaknesses here's where we're falling short here's where we need to address um so i i would be i can't see the mets being inactive at the trade deadline and maybe it's not, it's, I don't see it being a huge splash. I wouldn't be, I mean, I said this before, but I think Vogelbach's on the block. I think, uh, you know, I think people have kind of um, written him off, even though it's, you know, he walks a lot, he gets on base, but that's not what you're looking for out of him. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a thought that, I don't know if they want to, I'm torn between do we trade Ronnie Mauricio or do we just call him up and have him play seconds and shift McNeil to the outfield? You know, like our corner outfielders have been underperforming. I, I mean, you can't disagree with that. They've been underperforming all year. You know, they're just not. I mean, we have guys like Alvarez and Beatty that came up way later, you know, have not played as many games and are, are pretty much on the heels of putting up the same kind of numbers or if not better than Marte and Canna. So. I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe I don't know, but I, I think you might see Mauricio come up earlier than later, especially if we're continuing to kind of struggle and, and hover around that 500 mark. So Francisco Lindor, very confusing, right? He's the best overall shortstop we've had since Jose Reyes, easily a top two talent, uh, the position in franchise history, and um, fans are still going to be hot and cold with him. You know, I don't think everyone's on board the Francisco Lindor Express yet, and that stinks. But understandable. I mean, people want to get what they pay for, and they figure if they pay him as one of the as the highest paid shortstop in baseball, he should be the best shortstop in baseball. And um, it's like if he were earning a hundred million less, would we even be criticizing him? Would we, would we be talking uh, down on him? No, obviously not. But as uh, Tacoma points out, like he, if he gives the Mets a signature moment in the postseason, 
game seven winning hit home run. Uh, All that ails you will be cured in the postseason. That's really what it comes down to. Get to the postseason, win in the postseason, and you know, not not. I mean, pretty much all is forgiven, I guess. You know, not that there's much to. I don't. There's should be any reason to forgive him for any. He didn't commit any sins, really. It's just I think uh, he's not quite putting up the same numbers he did with Cleveland, so that's a bummer. But he's also not a complete bust. Or it's not like he's uh, below average in many categories at all. He does lead the team in strikeouts. <laughs> and he does have the lowest batting average among qualifiers. Guys that play a lot. And his on-base percentage is 295. So he's striking out a lot, or he's getting extra base hits. He's slugging. He's slugging or striking out. Doubles, home runs, or strikeout. And, uh, you know, Buck seems to think that he's just trying to be too perfect. You know? And, uh, you know, maybe just needs to relax, you know? So we talked about Vogelbach. You know, he was supposed to be this guy that can can really own right-handed pitchers, and that really hasn't been the case. He's got on-base prowess, but the power drought is extensive and long and lengthy and never-ending. <laughs> so I, and I don't, I don't think many people see that turning around. And I think I, so. I think that's what would be trade bait, um, which which sucks because he's so he is he is. I mean, he does he does have a very healthy portion of the fan base that loves him for his personality and for what he brings to the team in terms of chemistry and all that. But woof, dude, you got to start knocking in. You got to start slugging like big time. So, um, you know, they've already kind of made it. You know, Vientos got the start tonight against the lefty Suarez and not exactly lighting it up. You know, we talked about let the, let the kids play, but I think the majority of that, other than Vientos having that huge game-tying home run, I think it was against the Rays maybe, he's hasn't been that great. You know, he was hitting, he was uh, below 200 entering today's game. I think he got above 200 with his hit tonight. But it's really been, it's really been Alvarez and Beatty, and it's been Alvarez as like the clear guy leading the way. Like we'll get into Alvarez's numbers soon, but oh my god, it's uh, way above and beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> I don't think anyone saw uh, his outburst, his uh, production, the way it is now. Like I said, Verlander and Scherzer. You know, I think a lot of people thought we'll go as far as they they go, and uh, I didn't have a ton of confidence in them coming into the season. And uh, you know, Tacoma mentions that they're more limited versions of themselves than we've seen in the past, and I agree. And to me, it's like I it's hard to to see them as the one and two. I I just can't see. You know, it's just, but we don't have any better options at this point. You know, to me, a one and two. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just more getting more acclimated. I don't know. But it's it's the if we are relying on them to kind of spearhead the uh, the movement towards getting above five hundred and getting in contention and getting back in the wild card race, I just don't like. We just need them to pitch league average at this point, <laughs> you know. So Tacoma posits that is it going to be Kodai Senga? that leads the way and becomes our, our, our ace, the number one guy. And I like, I could see that happening. 
You know, he looked unhittable against the Rays. Um, but again, the walks are killer. Walking too many batters, and uh, he's get his pitch count is getting too high, and that's why he has to leave most games. And even with that, he's still giving us more innings. <laughs> even even every sixth day, giving us you know deeper outings than most of our other pitchers. Um, Pete Alonso looking like he's on pace to hit sixty home runs or more, which is great. Brett Beatty is just like the guy at third. You know, doesn't feel or look or seem like a rookie. I mean, he's he's a young looking dude. He still looks like he's in high school. I'll never get over that. But uh, Decomo says that he is most like Michael Conforto in uh, in a comparison in terms of demeanor, and I agree with that. Conforto didn't often handled he handled a lot of what uh, the ups and downs with pretty much an even keel. Um, never got too down, and you can see that with Beatty as well. Decomo calls him unflappable on and off the field, which is kind of you know, if he's a placid lake, Alvarez is a straight-up volcano coming, popping out through that lake and <laughs> blowing into the stratosphere. Um, you know, I think people were worried about his defense when they called him up, and he's actually, he's got, I mean, he had a pretty ugly couple first outings behind the plate, and now he's just, he's a great defender, a good defender, throwing guys out. He threw a guy out tonight, I think he threw out, threw out Real Moto, which was huge in a close game like that. Um, but it's, 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 I mean, the defense has been a nice icing on the cake. It's his offense has really stolen the show. We talked about how there's, we were lacking power in the last episode. It's like you take away Alonzo and it's like, no one's hitting home runs, but then Alvarez went on a tear. Lindor is hitting more home runs. Now the Mets have hit a home run 12 straight games, which is their longest streak of the season. I think this makes it 13 or 14 straight games. Cause this data this stat is from like a couple days ago. 21 home runs in that span. Um, and it's been thanks to Alvarez and Alonzo, obviously, and Lindor. The most home runs hit by a Met under the age of 22 in a single month in club history. Daryl Strawberry had nine in 83. Svoboda had seven in 65. And then you have Alvarez, seven in the month of May. This is from a couple days ago, but he's hit four home runs over his last seven games. The list of Mets under the age of 22 to hit at least four home runs over any seven-game span, Strawberry, Greg Jeffries, David Wright, Francisco Alvarez. The highest four among National League rookies this season. Francisco Alvarez, 1.1. He's in third behind Corbin Carroll and James Altman. So it was a pretty easy decision for Buck to be like, all right, we're going to need a DFA, Gary Sanchez. That's pretty obvious. And then he ended up uh, signing with the Padres. But it looks like we have our guy. And now that the booth was talking about how Narvaez is set to come back like next week or something like that. And they're like, I don't see any reason why you would sit Alvarez, sit Alvarez for Nar- Narvaez. I think at this point, you got to ride the hot hand and just say, Alvarez, it's your position to lose. Really, you won it with your performance. I mean, um, I don't know if I have most of his numbers here, but he's got a... Uh, over 800 OPS, and if you take, and if you just take the last like two weeks or something like that, his OPS is like 1400. Some nonsense. He's just uh, playing out of his mind, and you know, part of the realist, the realist part of my brain is like, all right, well, eventually he's going to come back, back down to the median. He can't play like that all season long. Um, but my God, champagne problems, right? You know, if Narvaez can come back and at least play average. Having those two guys behind the plate, 
you know, being able to spell them and still getting the, you know, the kind of performance that we've been dying for, you know, think about the, the, the seasons we had McCann, you know, when Nito, when Nito had like a, a breakout month and we were losing it, we were losing it over, you know, the fact that we had someone behind the, the dish to, to give us some kind of output. And then and Nito took a dive for the worst. So I like that combo, Narvaez and Alvarez. Very nice. So that's another position that we can probably not have to worry about. I'm, I have the utmost confidence in that, in that position now. It's crazy how we went from like bottom of the barrel to now like we probably have the best one-two combo unit in uh, all Major League Baseball. Just got to figure out the DH, got to figure out the corner outfield. And a bullpen arm wouldn't hurt, right? Bullpen arms never hurt. Mets are tied for the first in Major League Baseball for their teams and a fielding percentage at 990. This is uh, something we we talked about. You know, least amount of errors in, in the in the league with only 18. And that goes a long way, and I hope that continues. You know, I think that's, uh, you know, if you can continue to uh, get some pretty good production from your offense, if the pitching can ever just settle down and come back to the league average, the defense will win championships. <laughs> so that's the Mets. Let's talk about the Giants. Not a lot to talk about, but OTAs have started. We'll get into that in a bit. But uh, there are a couple, three news items that I thought kept popping up on my timeline that I thought I would address. I don't think any of them are really that big news, but it's something to talk about, <laughs> basically. DeAndre Hopkins was released by the Cardinals after they couldn't get a trade done. And uh, I saw a lot of photoshops, a lot of mock-ups of, of DeAndre D-Hop in a Giants uniform. And I'm here to say that's probably not going to happen. I think most people with uh, a high amount of logic floating around their cerebellum would probably say it's just not in the cards, especially with, pun intended, uh, with the salary cap the way it is. Do I see him as a mesh working well with that room, with this team, with this coaching staff? My initial instinct is no. And if I had to place a bet, I would say he's, he would most likely reunite with Deshaun Watson, former Houston teammate in Cleveland. That seems to be the, the way it's going to go. I would be surprised, and uh, I'm a little gun shy after <laughs> the Kenny, Doll Kenny Galladay experiment. Not to say that DeAndre Hopkins is going to be the next Kenny Galladay, but he does have certain injury issues, getting a little up there in age. I'd rather not. It just seems like a risk I'm not willing to take. So, um, again, if we sign him, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to throw a fit over it. I just feel like we're better off without him. There have been, of late, a lot of comparisons between Daniel Jones and Josh Allen. And I think it's it's nice to see. And I think there's all of a sudden there's been like this kind of weird change, at least in the uh, the opinion about Daniel Jones. And this is it just seems to have happened in like the recent like this week. It just seems like all of a sudden like a lot of people putting him down in that fourth, fifth, whatever bottom tier of league of quarterbacks in the league. And now you start to hear people saying, oh, yeah, he's average. He's not like, how do you give an average quarterback that much money? And now we're starting to say he's just on an upward trend, up and to the right, big time. 
And could he be a top 10 quarterback? Yeah, I think so. You know, there are a lot of, you know, numbers never lie, but they can tell an interesting story. And the numbers that people are putting out there, comparing him to Josh Allen and um, Jalen Hurts are interesting. It's like, okay, I see. This is the fun part about numbers. We can manipulate them and say, see, he is on their level. And he doesn't have this supporting cast that Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts has. Um, is he, with the recent additions, signings, trades, draft, is he at that level? Does he, does he have that supporting cast now that the other two have? I'm going to go say not quite, but who knows? You know, there's a lot. They, they have fully stocked that wide receiver room. And it's going to be, and that's, uh, we're going to get to position battles in a bit, but that one's the, like the, the big one, the glaring one. And uh, from the limited time, limited days of OTA that we've had, it seems like Darren Waller is all that in a bag of chips. And any talk about him not being able to, he's lost a step or he's not quite the same or whatever, it seems like uh He's he's now the missing piece of the puzzle that's going to unlock fully unlock Daniel Jones, which is great to hear. But again, shirts and shorts, guys. Shirts and shorts, no pads. So the offense is, I, you know, we kind of panicked last year because the offense looks so, like such garbage. And it, lo and behold, is because Brian Dable was stacking the cards against them. This year, it looks like the offense can't be stopped based on the reports that are coming out of camp out of OTAs, like, you know, nearly 100% completion percentage, touchdowns all over the place. So I don't have uh, as much dread <laughs> about the offense as I did last year. But I also don't want to get too high. Got to level set, got to recalibrate the the expectations and anticipation. Um, but the, the news of Josh Allen's downfall are, like, a bit premature. And though there are... I think that's a decent comparison, Daniel Jones and Josh Allen, in terms of like how they play the game. Um, you know, Josh Allen did play hurt most of last season, so I think that had to come into play at some point. And if Jones can avoid injury and continue to make smart decisions, not turn over the ball, um, I think he could enter in that top 10 field. Do I see him ever being a top five? Stranger things have happened, man. Like I said, I did, I just think he's such a great underdog to root for, and um, I don't know that he's gotten the best shake. You know, it's just like Eli last three, four, five years of his career, they they didn't really give him a ton of help, and I was begging him to just, can you just take a pay cut so they can bring in some people to help you? <laughs> and he just just wouldn't do it, wouldn't budge. But um, they're doing it for Daniel Jones now, which is uh, such a relief. You know, they're not just going to say, no, we're good with what we got. We're going to roll with them again. They're going to mature. They're going to get improve year to year. And it's like, are they? Or can we just, like, can do this and this and this and this? And the final big news item that I saw was that uh, the Saquon Barkley contract debacle, which we kind of talked about last episode, still ongoing. And now it's it's like another wrinkle thrown into the to the whole game plan here where you know the reports that the Giants offer after the draft was lower than what they had offered uh, in prior negotiations, I guess, in season, maybe, or like right after the season ended. Well, coming up shy of that $13 million per year annual AV. <sighs> you know, I'm trying to like not buy into a lot of this media reporting because I think it's just like fodder 
And it's like they need to get clicks, right? So I think they might be blowing it slightly out of proportion. We're all outs for the most part, we're all outsiders, right? Even the like the beat reporters and whatnot that think they have a pulse on what's going on. They're not in not fully embedded twenty four seven inside at all points. So it's just like both sides want it to happen. Both sides are gonna get it done. It's just tinkering. You know, pull this string, pull this lever, up this, down this, you know, it's I, I just can't, and if he's forced to play on the franchise tag, can he sit out? Uh, that's my only concern is like, because I, I feel like if he's forced to play on the on the tag, he's going to play angry and we might get the best out of him. And if that, but I'm curious to see even if he were to put up uh, a top, another top three, top five performance at the running back, running back position in 2023, how much that adds to his asking price you know i just don't uh you know so i and then to know that he could he could get tagged again in 2024 which is kind of crazy um yeah i just uh saquon is friends with dj he makes such a great duo he's got a lot of good friends on the team doesn't seem like he's he's personally sour about his time with the giants and believe me as I mentioned in that opening game against the Titans, he has plenty to be sour about. The fact that they never really fully remedied and fixed the offensive line is a slap in the face to both Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. And, and uh, you know, I, I was just, like, furious that, that it felt like... <laughs> talk about overreacting. It felt like if we... If we if that game continued to go as it was going and we lost by a touchdown or two, it's like I wouldn't be mad at Saquon if he demanded a trade or if he wanted to get out get the hell out of Dodge. But um, what a difference a year makes! What a difference a season makes! Because I think that he, after seeing what he was able to achieve with this coaching staff and this front office, it's like sky's the limit, and it feels like this is a good thing, and I need to stick with it, and could really establish and build a strong legacy here you know so i just i don't feel i don't feel that worried i really don't you know and they asked dable like what do you think are you how are you preparing for this and what if this happens what is this and and dable had a pretty you know safe conservative answer which is uh very applicable to my mindset right now but you you deal with what's in front of you right we are game planning and and scheming and we're acting as if Saquon is not on the team because he's not under contract. He's not suiting up. He's not on the field. So we have to. That's how we're approaching the day to day and play by play. Once he signs and comes back, then we uh, then we move forward with that that plan. So pretty even keel, but I, I I don't see us. I don't know. I don't see us winning a ton of games without him. I think we can be competitive, but I just don't see... He's just a game changer. Huge, big-time playmaker, and I don't know that you can make up for his loss. And I know people will point to that that like Packers game where he was out for the series and we went 90-some-odd yards without him. No. And Kafka was, uh, I mean, some of the most creative play calling I've ever seen with guys that weren't on the roster, you know, come week one. And Daniel Jones really playing above and beyond to make up for Saquon's loss. That's one drive. I don't know that you can do that for seven to 10 drives per game for 17 games in a season. So 
as much as we are a lot of people devalue the running back position to say it's it's so not worth it he's just not he's not miles sanders and he's not some of these other running backs that are not getting the money that we all thought they would in free agency i believe there is a team out there that want that would be willing i take that back i don't know i don't know if there are teams considering what the browns did with chubb the titans did with henry the vikings did with cook the Packers did with Jones. Like, so it just feels like this is a pretty good relationship. Let's keep it going. Let's not get too out of sorts, right? Maintain your emotions. <laughs> just like work through it. So that's the Saquon. Saquon contract saga. We can take a look at the, the top position battles during OTAs. Um, I don't know that they're much of battles. Like we, we, I briefly hinted at the wide receiver battles. I think that's going to be the most intriguing from this list. You know, I think there's a lot of guys in the mix. You know, you have uh, Colin Johnson coming back from injury, Wondell Robinson coming back from injury, Sterling Shepard coming back from injury. So, and I think that's a major reason why they didn't, uh, they didn't want to completely give up on those guys, but they're also like, let's, let's get some insurance. And they did that with Paris Campbell, Jameson Crowder. Uh, was it Kevin Smith? No. Justin Smith? Jeff Smith? So, uh, and they also have this undrafted free agent who a lot of people are high on. Bryce Wheaton, I think his name is. And Hodden and Slayton. I mean, I, I feel good about the wide receiver room, you know? And it's a matter of uh, do we have, there's concern that we might have too many slot guys. You know, Jalen Hyatt is also technically lined up a lot in the slot at Tennessee. You know, I think there's there's been some buzz or word about Hyatt not being able to struggling to adapt to the NFL because he limited he ran a limited route tree and there was a lot of off coverage, not a lot of press coverage. So like how's he gonna do against press coverage? What's he gonna do with an expanded route tree? You can't teach speed. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I think that's his it's like, uh, you know, I don't see him, I don't really fully expect him to go, like, go off for a thousand yards and have 10, 15 touch, the receiving touchdowns and average 16, 20 yards a catch. Um, but I do see him developing into a pretty good number two and number three. I really do. And you might say, well, that's, that's not what we want, but I, you know, I, I think Having Darius Slayton and Jalen Hyatt on the field at the same time, dude, make sure you have the fire department on speed dial, bro. They're going to set the field on fire. They're burners. And the fact that you have now two burners that can, that can really stretch the field, it opens a lot up uh, over the middle, underneath. I'm looking at you, Darren Waller. I'm looking at you, Wondell Robinson. I'm looking at the guys that like to run a lot of short, mid-range routes. Um there's just going to be space. You know, it's very reminiscent of like uh, the Chiefs when they had Tyreek Hill, but even the Chiefs after they had Tyreek Hill and the Dolphins with Tyreek Hill. The ability to, well, you know, the, the Dolphins also have Waddle as well. So it's like when you have that kind of threat and the, the opposing defense has to respect that, I think it's a, it only means good things for the offense. So an abundance, overabundance of wide receiving talent and um, as opposed to last year, where I, where I think there was a pretty steep drop-off 
from like starters to not starters, starters to bench, I don't see as steep a drop off, right? And considering that we were still able to put up, you know, I mean, obviously there are games where we just completely struggled against some of the top defenses, but the fact that we were able to produce with some of the talent like we did against Green Bay where we're, we don't have a lot of the guys um, that usually are, are starting and getting the majority of the snaps, like to be able to compete with that level of talent, now we have two notches, three notches above that in terms of what we're putting on the field. So it's like we have a plan A, we have a plan B, and a plan C. Um, so i very excited. I'm like trying to temper how excited I am about this offense. Like I, I know the defense is going to come and bring it. I just know that like the defense is, is going to be, uh, I, I'm not going to say leaps and bounds, but it's going to be as good as, and definitely better than they were last season. And last season they were, uh, I think most people would say they were a pleasant, fairly pleasant surprise. I don't know that a lot of people were expecting Martin Dale just come in and magically turn them around from being among the league's worst to, you know, a formidable defense. So that's why it's like these people are crying about the schedule, dude, eight and nine. I just don't see it. So that's the biggest position battle in my mind. The next one is running back two. This is, uh, you know, basically if Saquon's unable to go for whatever reason, you know, you do have Matt Breida back, you have Gary Brightwell and you have Eric Gray. And the, the consensus, I guess, is that Eric Gray is going to beat out Gary Brightwell, which is, I don't know. I don't feel great about it. I mean, I don't know that Brightwell's that bad. Um, so, but it, I'm, I'm, I am pretty pumped to see what Eric Gray can do. You know, I think, uh, there's some, been some talk from like, uh, NFL executives and coaches that, um, they could take it or leave it. Eric Gray in the round, the, the pick that the Giants selected him and that maybe what stands out to, uh, us about Eric Gray is pass catching abilities, pass protection. Um, I just love the way he runs. He's just like a friggin' pinball. Next position battle. Inside linebacker two. So who's going to play next to Bobby Okereke? And uh, I'm kind of pulling for Darian Beavers because I know he was having a pretty decent camp last season and was in line to be the starting linebacker. And then uh, obviously went down with the ACL, I believe it was. So he's coming back from injury. I don't know that... I could very easily see it as like he's not the starter next to Okereke when the when the season opens, but he's he's gonna get there. He's eventually gonna be the guy. Um, next up would be cornerback two position. Somehow people think that Deontay Banks is not gonna be the day one starter. I don't know why, but uh, there is a decent amount of competition there, right? Cordell Flott played a lot on the outside out of necessity, really, um, due to injury. Um, Fabian Moreau, obviously in the mix. Um, I don't know if Aaron Robinson is still in consideration. I think there's like one or two other guys, <laughs> but, uh, I, unless something unforeseen happens, like the major knock on Deontay Banks that I don't know that we got, we didn't really touch on too much when I did my NFL draft reaction or preview was there are executives and coaches who think that he makes some really dumb plays. And as long as the scheme is not too advanced and above him, and he can just play press man, and then you know if he has some guidance and support on the field, people who know what they're doing, maybe like an Xavier McKinney, or uh, someone who is more well versed in the scheme, they can you know hold his hand a little bit. But that's been the knock on him. So it's like 
you know, and then my mind starts to go to bad places like, oh my God. So now off so OC opposing OCs are just going to dial up something that is tricking him <laughs> because he's easily tricked. Is that, is that the, the deal here? Or is it going to be a situation where, uh, it's not so much that as like, he just maybe gets frustrated, you know, like it's not his day or it's not his drive and he does something, uh, you know, I think we, we did kind of talk about that. And the reaction is that he'll, he'll get pretty upset about getting beat or, you know, uh, you know, not coming out on top and taking it out. And that's when the flags fly. So, Hey, listen, he's a, he's a rookie. He's going to make rookie mistakes. We have to live with that. But I have to believe that we're not getting DeAndre Baker 2.0. I really don't think that's the case. Even though they have the same initials and it sounds similar. <laughs> DeAndre Baker, please God, you can't have another instance of that. So, uh, but man, I mean, I've been craving a press man guy to uh, to be a lockdown. That would be huge. That would be so huge. So, yeah, I can see him... I don't see him getting burnt too much. I think we did see DeAndre Baker in his rookie season getting toasted and roasted. And I don't know that Banks lets that happen too often. It seems like if he does get beat, he has the ability to uh, to catch up and close the gap and make a play. So it's cornerback two. And then these last two, I feel like are pretty settled. Center, that's John Michael Schmitz all day, every day. I don't see any reason why he would not take that you know i think the article i saw in the athletic asking for honest opinions from the nfl executive nfl coach was one was saying that uh despite that he was better than tippman even though tippman was taken 14 picks earlier by the jets and though and although tippman is more athletic john michael schmitz is a better football player that's all i care about dude i don't care if you win the strongman competition or the yeah, was it the Eliminator on American Gladiators? Like, just can you play good football? It's great. That's all I care about. So, uh, really looking forward to the kind of boost that he can. And again, you know, I think we had we have these we place these pretty much unrealistic expectations on a lot of these rookies and expect them because they are a first round pick or top five or top ten that they are going to come out and light it up from the first snap. And, you know, with Kayvon Thibodeau last year, it was like we had to show a little patience. You know, obviously, um, between the two, him and Evan Neal, Thibodeau shined more and gave us more hope and promise uh, and finished really strong. But Evan Neal could take that step in, in, in year two, just like Andrew Thomas did. You know, I don't know that Andrew Thomas was... Uh, people were you know, praising him as much as they are now. He wasn't worse than what we previously had. So I think that was encouraging. It was just like the injuries were kind of getting to him and, you know, just little missteps here and there, but it seemed like he was learning and getting better and that's all we can ask for, you know. Um, we're so quick to, like, cut these guys and dump them and bail that uh, we learn there's a learning curve. And, like, of course, there are some guys that can just step in and... and and be dominant, but um, I think you're going to see Thibodeau take, a ne- take the next step next year. Evan Neal will take the next step, and we'll see flashes of what to expect, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the ceiling, if you will, for a lot of the rookies this year. 
yes, Banks and Schmidt and possibly Hyatt are your day one starters who, um, but they're not going to be probably not going to be like top five at their position, but they're going to show, they're going to give you reason why that's not that crazy to think, you know, I'm, I'm so, I can't express how awesome it is that we got a center drafted a center who could be the guy at that position for the next decade. And like the banks, I mean, of the three, I have the utmost, I have the most confidence in Schmitz. I think that's the guy that's like, that's going to be rock solid and steady. And that's like, that gives me, it's like a security blanket. It's like, uh, it's my anti-anxiety pill, you know? Banks is um is dangerously thrilling. You know, it's like that that I get scared about because it's like he could be he feels like he could be a Darrell Rebus. Like he could be, you know, we had like our last lockdown corner. I don't know that I would, I would classify Dory Jackson as like a lockdown corner. He does limit the damage considerably against some of the top talent. I'll give him that when he's healthy. But in terms of like lining a guy up for 16, 17 games a season and knowing that the opponent's wide receiver, top wide receiver, is going to put up numbers below their average every time. We have, I don't know that we've, I can't remember the last time we had that. It certainly wasn't in most of the Super Bowl, the two most recent Super Bowl runs. Like that, that trio we had with Jack Rabbit, that obviously had Jack Rabbit in 2016 was pretty damn good drc was decent but again there was some games where it's like where are you guys and uh so that that defensive back the db room in 2016 was pretty cool you know even with eli apple being whatever but before that hmm, tough to say would you have to go back to like jason seahorn pre acl mcl tear or whatever he tore in 98 you know, because that those defenses from ninety three, ninety four to two thousand, two thousand two, I'd say like ninety three to two thousand two, our defenses were like unbelievable. And I think the corners, so it was Seahorn and Sparks for a long, a long time. And then I don't, I don't remember who else did. So yeah, I would say, man, would be great to have a lockdown corner. Um, and then the last position battle is left guard. I think the favorite is Ben Bredersen. He's competing with Josh Zudu, who's coming back from a, a pretty nasty injury. Um, Marcus McKeithen, who lost the season due to ACL, I believe, uh, before the season even started. So is he gonna? What's he? What's his recovery process gonna be like? What's where's he, where's he at? Do we think that he could be someone that we could consider halfway through the season, toward down towards the the, the final stretch of the season? Um, so that left guard position will be interesting. I don't know that Shane Lemieux is really in the running. I don't know if he's even going to make the, the, the 53-man roster. Is that weird to say? It feels like he kind of fell out of favor, which sucks, just like he just can't stay healthy. Um, so, yeah, it's the those are the position battles to look out for, uh, not just OTAs, but training camp, preseason. Um, I'm actually pretty excited about preseason. I, I usually don't get excited about preseason, but it, I think it's been cool to see a lot of these rookies in action. Because I think they're, they are, in terms of draft classes, this could be the biggest difference makers. 
I know it sounds weird to say with Thibodeau and Neil last year. Huh. I guess we'll see. Anyway, that's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, I will, you know, if you've lasted this long, um, you might say, wow, Neil, like, uh, you don't have the same kind of energy that you usually do. What's up? Well, I'm also, like, not buzzing <laughs> from my drink. Um, you know, I had a pretty, pretty uh, eventful weekend. You know, Memorial Day weekend. Um, I went to Block Island to stay with some friends and uh, got after it pretty hard. So uh, taking it easy tonight. But uh, before I made it to Block Island, uh, I stopped by to visit my grandmother who was in hospice care. She moved from palliative care to hospice care. And so I did get to see her Friday night. It was a six and a half hour drive from from Mercer County, New Jersey, which is kind of crazy. I don't think it's ever taken me that long before, but there were multiple stoppages. Merritt Parkway should be permanently closed. That's a fact. And uh, I got to spend some time with her Saturday morning, uh, FaceTime with my sister so she could, um, you know, pass along her messages to uh, my grandmother. She's 95, and uh, she passed on Sunday morning. So in a better place... You know, that's what they say, right? In a better place. I know she was scared of dying um, when I when I visited her and she had a full cognizance. It was one of the last times that I can remember that she was fully there and fully with it. She said she was just scared of dying and she didn't want to die alone. And luckily my uncle um, was there with her throughout the whole process and she was surrounded by loved ones, which is all you can ask for. She didn't want to die alone and she didn't. So, um, she did so much for our family and I know, uh, you can't please everyone. You can't make everyone happy, but she tried her damnedest to take care of everyone, no matter what, you know, she was in a wheelchair last time I visited, was trying to cook me dinner. It's like, what are you doing? Just roll yourself over to the dinner table and let me take care of things. I'm a grown man. Jesus. Um, apparently she, uh, before I got to, to the nursing home, where she was in hospice care, my she was hallucinating a lot. And one of the hallucinations, she sat up and she started to make the motion as if she was stirring like a pot. My uncle said, well, what are you doing? And she said, I'm, I'm trying to make clam chowder, but I don't have all the ingredients. Can you run out and get all the ingredients for the clam chowder? Thank you so much. And so they went out and got her clam chowder so she could have clam chowder to eat. And so they hand her the clam chowder and they go, oh, here you go. We found some clam chowder. And she goes, oh, this is not enough. How are we, we going to feed all these other people? We got to take care of these people. We don't have enough for all these people. So even in her hallucinatory state, if that's a word, still thinking about other people, still thinking about taking care of other people. And uh, that's how she showed her love, you know, just feeding people. She just like, anytime I went to her place and stopped in for a visit it was like she ordered for food for 17 people it's like it's just me <laughs> i'm gonna have leftovers for the next four seasons so um like i kept saying to everyone she just lived such a good life she did so much for everyone and for for me personally and uh you know we lost a good one such a tough lady i mean the the amount of stuff that she went through in the past year or two i mean you run down the list and you're like how the hell did she get through all that? You know, we're talking about cancer, stomach surgery, 
uh, COVID, like it was just, it was a lot. And she just powered through. And every time the, it's crazy when the nursing staff and the medical staff are like, we've never seen that. That never happens. That's no way. We would never have predicted or, or bet on her pulling through all that. So she fought to the bitter end and she's a strong, tough lady. They don't make uh, a lot of people like her. Um, she said, she always says she was praying for me. <laughs> so Italian, <laughs> so Italian. And um, I'm so thankful that uh, I got to see her. You know, I was kind of dreading it, you know, because I'm not, I'm not too great with death myself. And I'm dying, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it weighs on me a lot. You know, think about my legacy in life and try to make the most of it. And uh, she did. She really did. You know, so, so many good memories that I share with my sister while I was there um, about, you know, what she did for us and all her peculiarities and idiosyncrasies and all, you know, quirks and whatnot, eccentricities. And, um, but, uh, you know, as much as I, I waffle, and go back and forth between like, is there an afterlife or is this all we get? The logical, rational part of my brain is like, oh, there's just nothing anymore. That's it. There's nothing. And then I catch myself, you know, it's like I'm out on Black Island. I'm looking up at the sky and there's not a cloud in the sky. And I'm like, I hope the view's good up there. You know, say so I had a dad and, and papa for me. So, you know. It's a very interesting way to think. It's like, oh, I know that's not probably the case, but just in case, I'll send a, a nice little thought up to you. So uh, I guess I can do something pretentious, like dedicate this episode to her, but it's just like I wanted to to let um, let the world know, the five people that listen, that um, you know, she meant a lot to me. And I think about, like, where would we all be without her? You know, she had four boys, one, two, three, you know, a bunch of grandkids, a bunch of great grandkids, and she's had an impact on every single one of them. So, um, quite the character. So we'll miss her and, uh, sorry to end on a down note, but you know, just trying to give you an insight, insights into like what, where the brain's at right now, you know, um, just life, like what the, just when you think you have life figured out and planned out. It's uh, it's like, oh yeah, check this out. Yank the wheel, throw you a nasty ghost fork. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say something corny or cheesy like hug your loved ones, but um, family's a weird dynamic thing. You know, some people have really strong family relationships. Someone, some are distant, uh, and. You know, like I said, I, I wish, you know, I wish everyone had that strong bond with everyone in their family. Um, and, you know, sometimes it just uh, doesn't turn out that way. But it's important to, I don't know, try to be as forgiving and I don't know if you say forward thinking, but trying to be more understanding, you know, and not just, uh, not just, throw someone under the bus because of xyz or how someone deals with something or processes something like we all have our own way of dealing and processing so <clears throat> that's all i'll say about that and everyone's going through their own shit you know like i'm not i know uh 
you know, a lot of this podcast is judging and criticizing and analyzing and all that shit. <clears throat> but, you know, if anything, this weekend has really shown me that it's, uh, we just need to be a little more, a little less of the coming down on people and being so harsh. And I'm a little more open to, <clears throat> it's all right, we'll figure it out. We'll get better. Let's just, you know, talk through it. Keep the lines of communication open. <clears throat> and uh, that's the that's the hope, right? It's the goal. <clears throat> Otherwise, what's the friggin' point? You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's enough. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. And we'll talk to you next episode. Adios, muchachos.